0: singing about Jesus coming soon just geeks me out. It makes me want to get right into our passage for today because this is a, a picture, one of the glimpses we get of what it's like when Jesus comes again. So if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it up to, to the very back, Revelation 21. It's your one chapter from the end. Revelation 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab a Bible out of the chair, open up your phone or your device. It's great if you can read along. Revelation 21. Okay, before I read this, I want you to know that you're in my prayers. And here's a prayer I often pray for you. The Lord be with you. Revelation 21, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So we've been working on this series now for many weeks, exploring John 10.10, where Jesus says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, and have it abundantly and we've been trying to figure out what is that abundant life life is so i'd like you to actually turn to your neighbor right now and complete the sentence life is okay what do you what do you fill in the blank with life is what talk quick i waited for steve to get in here so we could do that <laughs> you're welcome Okay, the most common phrase that comes to my mind when I complete that sentence is, life is good. I just think that we are blessed. God is the giver of good gifts and we often get to enjoy those. But we've also discovered along the way that life has kind of two tracks. So sometimes life is good, very good, and sometimes life is hard. It can be painful. Sometimes life is full of joy and happiness and celebration. Sometimes life is filled with grief and difficulty and pain. Sometimes life is light, and sometimes life is dark. Life has these two uh, rails. Sometimes life is abundant. Sometimes we find life has some uh, shortages. There's not enough. What we discovered last week, that no matter how we live in this life, that if we're Christians, that, that life is lived in Christ. For I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And most of this series has been focused on trying to figure out what is that life as we live it here and now? Kind of the day-to-day, in-and-out routines of life. How do we experience abundant life and what does that look like? I want to wrap up this whole series by looking at a little bigger picture of life, of actually taking it beyond life as we know it here and look at eternal life and try to figure out what God says about that. So we're thinking about that today and when I move into this area, I recognize three questions that are kind of eternal questions that seem to come up w- more frequently and with greater urgency as we recognize that we're coming near to the end of our life. These are the kinds of questions I hear. The first question is this, what happens to all the stuff of life? You know, we spend most of our life accumulating and amassing things, and possessions, stuff, relationships. What should I do with this stuff as my life is coming to an end? What happens to this stuff? That's one of the questions. The second question is, what happens to my name? This is a question I hear people ask when they're wondering about kind of the the mark they leave behind or their identity. What about my reputation? What happens to my name? And historically, this was actually one of the most important questions many people asked as they approached death, because family name really mattered, heritage mattered. You wanted to be able to pass on a good name or a good reputation to your family. I'm not sure that's as... uh, Our interest in that is quite as keen today as it used to be, but we're still very interested in identity. Like, who am I, and what happens to my identity when I die? Will anybody remember me when I'm gone? Will I have a good name after I've left? And these two questions... What happens to my stuff and what happens to my name all point toward the third question, which I think is a core question, and that is, what happens to me? When this life is over and I die, is there more or is this it? What happens to me? Do I live on in some significant way? So I want to approach those three questions in the next few moments And I'm excited because I think Revelation 21 is one passage we can turn to to get good answers to all three of those questions. So the first question, what happens to the stuff of life? Listen again to the passage, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Now, this phrase is a really important phrase, especially in this part of the Bible. When we get to the last few chapters of Revelation, there's almost an obsession with the new creation. That as Jesus returns, as all of history unfolds and starts to kind of come together, there is something about a new creation that God is very interested in making. He wants to make everything new. He wants to remake or redeem or reshape or refashion all of this stuff. Now, most people who study these verses insist that the new creation includes absolutely everything that God ever created. So you look out into the created world and you recognize the grass, the trees, the flowers, the birds, the butterflies, everything that God ever made is destined for some kind of remaking, some kind of new creation. And the Bible's very insistent on this makeover being complete and absolute. And this is an interesting point because it feels to me like this is one of the ways that the the Bible is signaling to us that God wins in the end and the devil loses. Because remember, we've been talking about this thief, this devil, who is very interested in stealing and killing and destroying. His whole purpose in all of his existence has been this. I want to undo what God does. I want to destroy the good things that God makes. I would like nothing better than to see this whole world unravel and come to pieces and fall apart. That's what this thief is trying to do. And then God paints this picture at the very end of creation and he says, Hey, listen, what? You want to hear what happens? Everything gets made new. Nothing gets ruined. Nothing gets destroyed. And as I'm reading these passages, I just love this picture. And it actually reshapes some of how I've been thinking about the end of time. Because I think I used to look at the uh, end of time something like this. Either I die and get taken to heaven or Jesus comes again and we all get taken to heaven and there's kind of this like leave the earth behind, all this stuff will fade and disappear. But these passages seem to paint a picture that says, no, what happens at the end of time is this, heaven comes down, God comes down. And he reshapes and reforms this earth so that it becomes a new earth and a new heaven. And so the stuff that we're familiar with, the stuff that we see and enjoy and love in this life, gets remade and made new so that we get to experience that for all time and all eternity. I love this picture. Now I have to maybe add a little caveat here because I recognize that oftentimes in this life, I get caught up in being really fixated on stuff that is temporary and passing much of the stuff of life eventually will become temporary or passing but a whole lot of it is permanent and actually in the end it gets remade and made new again so if you ask me the question what happens to the stuff of life I'd say the answer primarily is this it gets made new I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. And he says, Write this down. It's trustworthy and true. This all gets made new. What happens to the stuff of life? It's transformed. I'm looking forward to that day when there's going to be no more sin or decay, when the thief is not going to be able to have his hands on the stuff of this world to ruin it any longer, but everything's going to be made new as God designs it. And that leaves me with kind of two thoughts about this point. One is we should look carefully at the stuff of this life and the stuff of this world. And maybe we have to do a little bit of evaluation about what's really significant, what's really meaningful, what's really lasting in this life, and maybe take a little inventory there focus on what really matters. And the second thing is, take care of the stuff we have. That the stuff that we see in this world, including all of creation, is something that matters to God. It's going to be remade one day, and so we should take care of it now. That's a couple thoughts I have about that. What happens to the stuff of life? It gets made new. Second question, what happens to my name? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will be and he will dwell with them and they will be his god and God himself will be with them and be their god and he will wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In the end, God dwells in the middle of this new creation with a group that is named his people. God is going to dwell with his people. Now this phrase, God's people, is rich also throughout the Bible story. In fact, you might look at the core story of the Bible as being a a story of God creating a people and then dwelling with them. We see this happen in the garden. We see it happen in the wilderness. We see it happen in the promised land, in the holy land. We see it in the new heaven and the new earth. God always has his people. And they matter to him. They matter dealer. And throughout the story, God is even attentive to the names of his people. And so this would be a fascinating study if you want to go deeper into this. God is constantly naming and renaming his people. We see this happen actually dozens of times throughout Scripture where God comes and he says, Your name will be this. Or he'll say, your name was this, but now I'm going to make it this. And every time he talks about the name of his people, it's about their identity. He's trying to help them understand who they really are, who they are at the core of their being. Names really matter. That got me thinking this week. And then I came across this blog, which was written by an English teacher who writes under the name Shakespeare's Sister. And this is what she wrote. At the beginning of every school year, I try to learn all of my 11th graders' names by the end of our first week together. A thing happens every year, though, when I'm verifying pronunciations of student names. This year, it happened with two male students whose names have two possible pronunciations. When I asked them for the correct pronunciation, they both responded, whatever is fine, And when it happens, as it does every year, I look up from my roster make eye contact and say, no, it's not. It's your name. Tell me how to say it. It matters. I can't tell you how many people came up to me after the first service and said something about, you know what, people always mispronounce my name or misspell my name or get my name wrong. There's someone in the first service whose name is Carol with an E on the end. And she went on and on about her whole life. People have not got her name right. And I say, that matters, doesn't it? And she says, yeah, it does. That's my name. It matters. Does your name matter? Would you like to have your name right? Do you think your name matters to God? Now, about, I think this was about 10 years ago, I went on a retreat that was called the Leadership Crucible. You know what a crucible is? A crucible is that, like, container that you put metal in And then they heat it up to real intense heat so that the metal melts and then all the impurities from the metal float to the surface and then they skim it off. And then they heat it up really hot again and they skim it off. They heat it up really again, skim it off. It's a refining process. And then someone actually after the first service told me right now their grandson's in a crucible. He's getting ready to join the Marines and he's coming up to the final 48 hours of his training, which I guess they call... The crucible, it's like the last bit of refinement that comes before they're eligible to become a Marine. The crucible is about this intense thing to to refine somebody. So this I expected this leadership retreat to be quite intense, and I was not disappointed. I went to the first couple sessions and they like drilled down into these really complex leadership. Challenges, and then we had a little small group that had to try to solve these challenges, and we just couldn't get it right. We just couldn't figure it out. We couldn't, and then they came around and they pointed out all of our failures. I'm like, man, I signed up for this like training, and they're just telling me how wrong, and I already knew that because this came actually in a season when a, a really tough leadership season for me when there was lots of change around here and lots of new things, and I. I feel like a failure already. I feel like I got to grow. I got to be refined as a leader or it's not going to happen. So I went there to get encouraged and I left that first night of these sessions just completely beaten down. I I called Mary as I was walking back to my hotel and I said to her, this is so grueling. I think I'm going to quit. And she said something really kind and supportive like suck it up or something like that. So I went back to the next day, and it continued in this grueling fashion of trying to, like, just hone us as leaders and trying to develop all these things and skim off all these failures and all these faults and everything. This continued all day long until we got to the final session. In the final session of this retreat, they used this passage in Revelation 3 as the text for their retreat. Revelation 3, 5 says, "'The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white.'" I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. And then the speaker at this retreat invited us to recognize that no matter what our faults are, no matter what our failures were as leaders or as individuals, no matter what behavioral challenges that we had, no matter what kind of performance we did, he wanted us to know God loves us. And he, his reason for recognizing why God loved us was because this. Because you know that in the end of time, when all of history is coming together and being completed as God designed it, when it's exactly the way God wants it, then God's going to say your name. Jesus is going to go and he's going to proclaim who you are to the Heavenly Father and to all the angels. So don't let any failure, any struggles, any difficulties Stop you from believing. God loves you. You matter to him. Your name matters to him. That was a game changer for me and I actually called Mary up on my way back to the hotel after that session and she must have thought I flipped out because I couldn't even describe what just happened to her because I was crying so hard. Because it sunk into my heart of the value of my name to God. And so if I ask myself the question, what happens to me in eternity? What happens to my name, my identity, who I am? I know God loves me. Sometimes I've told you guys stories about, you know, what little kids say about love. You know, the one about like the little five-year-old says something like, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That's love. My favorite one is from a boy named Billy, age four. He said this. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. This is what happens to your name in all of eternity. Jesus goes around telling God the Father and his angels what your name is. And it's safe. This is good news, I think, but it's not even the best good news. The best good news comes to me when I think about the question, what happens to me in eternity? You know, the thing that is core, most essential to my being, what happens? And we've got lots of verses that are kind of classic verses about our eternal destiny and what happens. I'll share just a few. This first one's Hebrews 9.27. It says, people are destined to die once and after that, judgment. So that's pretty clear, right? Pretty straightforward. The death rate's 100%. It's all coming for all of us at some time. And then, judgment. And then, we get some pictures of what this judgment looks like. Here's Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So, there's death, and then there's judgment, and then there's a couple of paths. There's death, and there's eternal life. Now, none of us really likes to think about judgment, but... That is one path, and actually even this passage talks about a little bit if you jump down to Revelation 21.8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So even here, God is telling us he doesn't just like, wink at evil or excuse evil, that there is judgment that's coming. He wants to bring justice in God's desire to like, renew the world, to make everything new, to remake a new creation, that everything that's wrong has to be set right, and so that might require some judgment. But think about the other path then, too. This picture of eternal life. There, read this in verse 6, Revelation 21, 6. He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. So there's this great inheritance that we talk about in shorthand version as eternal life or eternal destiny. And God identifies himself as the one who's the guarantor of this inheritance. You're going to receive this. Because, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So that's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. God says, I'm the A to Z. I'm the beginning to the end. And he's talking about the substance of reality here. He's talking about the, the reality is this. God existed before anything else, before all time. And God will continue to exist for all eternity into all time. And this God is holding us in his hands. He's saying, I'm preparing a place for you, and I will take you to that place to be with me. God knew us before the creation of the world, and he will know us through all eternity, and he's watching over our coming and our going, now and forevermore. This infinite, eternal God says, I will live with you forever, I promise. That's what happens to us, to me, in eternity, and to anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And really, this picture of this living water is, I think, a picture of God's promise to actually give us ultimate satisfaction for all eternity. Now, this might be hard to get our minds around because we spend most of our life it, going out there to try to satis- find satisfaction. We're constantly looking for stuff to try to help us, and we're never quite satisfied. We're always restless. I need a little more of this stuff or a little better relationship here or a little something else here. If I can just get more of that stuff, then I'll finally be satisfied. And in this life, we never are fully satisfied. And then this beautiful promise. Well, in eternity, here's what you're going to do. Drink from the river of life and be satisfied forever. And God promises to give us this water without cost. This is what happens in eternity. We dwell in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus going around telling everybody our name and we get to be satisfied by everything that God offers to us, by dwelling with him, by being his people forever and ever. And it looks like this. No more striving, no more struggling, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief, eternal rest, peace and joy forever. That's what happens to us in eternity. I was I was pumping gas one week, one day this week at Casey's over here, the one on 16th, and as I was pumping gas, I watched these boys come, I think it was probably right after school, and there was a couple young boys going into Casey's, and they were all excited, and it didn't take them more than a few minutes, they come out, and this one boy has... A, Slice of Casey's Pizza and a red pop in his hand, and he is happy. You can just tell this kid is thrilled. And he takes his pizza and his pop, and he starts running over beside Casey's, and I think he's heading back to those apartments behind there. And as he's running, every step he takes, his pants fall down a little bit farther. (laughs) But he's got the pop and he's got the pizza, so he can't do anything. And I'm watching this kid run really fast, and I'm watching those pants fall really low, and I'm thinking... As soon as he got around the corner and I couldn't see him anymore, I almost guarantee you that kid face-planted because those pants had to go around his legs. There was no way those pants were going to stay up. This is what we do in life. We try to, like, grab onto our stuff, and we try to hold tight to our name, and we miss what matters most. In all eternity, this is what you get. You get what matters most, and you get to enjoy it with God in heaven. That's what happens at the end of time or when we die, whatever comes first. So, who wouldn't want this invitation? This is from Revelation 22. It's one of the, almost one of the last things in the whole Bible. The Spirit says this, Come, let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. Come. Now, we celebrate every month the reason why we can accept this gift without price, and we can do it because Jesus paid the price. We don't have to pay it ourselves. We come to this table when we celebrate communion every month, and we remember that Jesus, the price he paid involved his body broken, nailed to a cross. The price Jesus paid involved Jesus' blood poured out, spilled. We come to this table to remember that was the price that was paid. But we also come to this table to abide, then to draw life. Because as we recognize this, then in the same way that a branch draws life from a vine, so we draw life from Jesus. We get nurtured and strengthened because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And life is about abiding in Jesus. And then we also come here to this table in hope. Because this is what we know. This little piece of bread you're going to get and this little bit of juice you're going to get is just a pledge or a foretaste of a feast that's coming one day when we're all in heaven sitting at a grand banquet table face-to-face with Jesus. That's what we're looking forward to.